joining us on the Path Radio Mix online. And to get there, type in thepathradio.com. That's thepathradio.com. And enjoy free streaming music all day long. That's it. thepathradio.com. All right, now let's get to the main show, the monthly social podcast with me, your host, Guido Perino, as you go on with Guido. Hello, everybody, and welcome. It's 2021, February. This is our season two, second episode edition. I'm really excited. I've got a special lineup for you today. I hope that you're excited about it too. I've got special guest Stephen Gilmore, IT manager, who's going to talk to us about anti-black racism, Black History Month, and you don't want to miss it, our, our conversation about music there. I've also got uh, tax partner Rosa Ayuliano from Baker Tilly, Ottawa, who's going to give us the lowdown on home office tax deductions if you've been working from home from this pandemic. And we're going to switch gears. I've also got a little music segment for you, and that's that's going to come to us courtesy of Ronnie Beals, who's put out uh, a, a fresh song on the heels of Valentine's Day. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, of course, I can't leave you without giving you one of my little stories. This one is my moment with Stuart McLean of the CBC Vinyl Cafe. Cute little moment. Lots of information around that. And I'm hoping you're going to enjoy it. Now, I want to let you know before we get going that today's show is brought to you by RecipesAtMyTable.com. If you go there, the recipes are fun. They're free. There's no catch here, folks. It's just for the love of cooking. That's RecipesAtMyTable.com. Okay, I am here today with Stephen Gilmore, Manager for Desktop Planning with ITS Infrastructure Technology Services. You know, I got I to gotta tell you, Stephen, every time I say your name, like Gilmore, I, I feel like I want to, uh, I should be announcing you like on stage or something. And <laughs> I know, you know, there's some musical references we'll get to later on. So sorry, sorry for, for folks listening. Stephen Gilmore, uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, today we're going to uh, uh, continue the discussion on anti-racism and anti-black racism and um, to get your perspective as a black member of our community and as a leader and manager. Um, but before we get into that, I, I think it's important for me to, to, to say this. Um, I want to set this segment up a little bit. You know, I, I didn't just pick or ask you to be a, a guest out of the blue or, or just because you're black. You and I have known each other now for quite some time. Our careers have kind of uh, intertwined or inter intermingled a little bit. Um, we've also built some rapport with each other. We've collaborated on, on some solutions at work. Um, you know, one of my favorite parts of getting to know you uh, is through your musical talent as well. Um, you and I have played in, in multiple charity events. We've helped raise funds for United Way and Federated Health, uh, as well as spread uh, Christmas cheer. And um, the reality is this, though. You are far, far more graceful than me and my eight chords on my acoustic guitar. Um, when you're playing the piano, um, I, I've seen it at those charity events and, and how people just get uh, lost and absorbed in the way that you play. You're an incredible talent, and, uh, and it's inspiring to me uh, to watch you do those things. Um, but you know, you know what I remember most, though, like in, in terms of, of these events? 
And uh, what? Maybe, maybe you can help me sort of tell the story a little bit. It was one of the first times that that we were playing one of those charity events, and and uh, you said, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll play the piano, and I I went downstairs to where the stuff was being set up, and uh, you know there were speakers and cables and microphones, and I'm thinking, where's the piano? And uh, I asked, you know, I asked one of the coordinators, and I said, isn't isn't Stephen Gilmore playing the piano? Yeah, yeah, he's he's bringing it. I'm like, he's he's bringing what? Well, he went to pick up the piano. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and I'm like, well, who's helping him? I don't know. He's by himself. And it was a, I, it was a winter day, and I'm thinking to myself, how is he going to get a piano down here? And where did he go get a piano? So what what, what was that all about? Well, well, a couple of things. Um, going back like maybe ten years ago, there used to be an ITS band, and I got roped into playing bass because most people. I mean, a lot of people in music, maybe it's bass player, play upright bass, play a lot of jazz. But sometimes at rehearsals, when Brian Watts wasn't playing, your previous guest, I just noodle around on the piano. So when Brian retired, people were like, hey, Gilmore knows how to play piano. <laughs> and so <laughs> I got called into events. The thing is, I don't own a keyboard that I can travel with. I mean, I have a, a vintage, it's a 50-year-old Fender Rhodes classic keyboard that's in my basement that I would never take out of the house. So basically I went to rent it from on the plane. <laughs> and I remember that day because it was super, super cold and I made this weird pit stop at this hyperbolic chamber thing because I heard LeBron James does this to, to fix his muscles. But it was like minus 20. I said, why would you want to go into a frozen chamber in minus 20 degrees? I was just checking it out. Anyhow, I, I, I do remember that day specifically because it was cold and I had to rent that keyboard and get it down the stairs and um, and it was Chris and Brian Watts because <laughs> one of the great things about being a bass player is no one knows who you are. Well, you can you can play a million gigs, no one knows, no one cares. This is news to me. I didn't know you were a bass player. <laughs> See, cause, that's just it. Nobody knows. I mean, I went to a school for the arts, playing the bass. I played wow. this jazz gigs with some of the some really great musicians I'm proud to have been on stage with. But um, yeah, nobody else. So how did you go? How did you go from bass player to, to piano player? Like, and you're good. You're really good. Are you wait? Are you a better? Are you a better piano player than a bass player? So, so here's the story. I studied classical piano as a child, and so I was a kid inside the house playing, you know, scales while his friends were out front playing street hockey. Um, <laughs> and then in junior high, we had to pick an instrument. Thirteen year old boy, I figured I'll pick saxophone. It's the eighties. Everybody loves a saxophone. I'm right. to get a date, <laughs> but um, they put me in the string class <laughs> playing like cello, and I don't play cello. And then it, it's an absurd story, but this really cute girl in the viola section. I thought, well, I can't play viola, but the bass is right beside the viola. <laughs> and so I switched to bass. And then I auditioned for School for the Arts, and then I met these musicians in high wow. school. And we started playing jazz gigs all over the city, and then I got to play with Barry Harris and Grant Stewart, and a lot of these wow. really cool guys. And that's sort of how I ended up being a bass player. But because I studied classic piano, it's not like I forgot how to play. Um, but I was more likely to get hired for playing bass. That's awesome. So you're, it was destiny. Like, it, it just kind of flowed through destiny, that, and you were trying to impress a girl. So, all right. I was impressed. Yes. I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
you know what? It's funny. Like we, we for all the times that we talk, I always learn something new, um, you know, about you or, or, or this stuff. And I, I, that's what I love. It's just, it's always entertaining. It's always fun. <laughs> Um, so, so listen, music and fun aside, and we're going to have some, uh, some more of that later, you know, um, I wanted to get into the questions and, and stories. Um, you and I have been bantering about for a long time when it comes to, to anti-racism and anti-black racism. It isn't just something that, that is a point in time or, or, uh, you know, we don't wait to, you know, black history month to have the conversation. Um, we've had serious talks about it. We, we, we've, uh, had our, our playful talks amongst each other about it as well. Um, but before we get into that, um, one of the things that I, I ask everybody first, and, and it's just to help people out there who, from a, a career perspective or planning perspective, some people are just starting out, some people are in the middle of their careers. Um, tell me a little bit about your career path. You know, where, where did you start? Um, where did you go? Uh, you know, where did you go? How did, you, how did your career progress? Any advice for anyone who's looking to get into leadership or even management roles? Um, sure, sure. My career path, <laughs> I'm not sure it's one that you can necessarily replicate, so it's not something I necessarily give advice on. I was a uh, starving artist and very happy. I was playing gigs and producing bands. Uh, this was the 90s when, like, boy bands were breaking, and I was, uh, I was doing that kind of thing. Huh? Um, and I was touring, and an ex-girlfriend said to me, you're going to be a father. I was like, wow, I, uh, <laughs> I need a dog. <laughs> So a couple of days, I taught myself how to type, like in a week, and I got good enough that a placement agency placed me at a computer training company. And I was there for a few years, and I got pretty tired of it, and so I resigned with no place to go. And at the time, they said, well, can we place you somewhere? And they placed me at the government on a six-month contract. Now, it was, first of all, the weirdest interview I've ever had. I, I, you know when your, your, your resume at the bottom will say like interest? I yeah. missed what I interested in at the time. I was doing martial arts, I was playing squash, I was playing music, and I just left it at that. The person who interviewed me looks at my resume, and he's really yes, it's, it's, and he zips up the problem at the bottom and says, you play music, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, I just play jazz, I play bass. He said, do you ever play soca? And I said, well, I used to be in a soca band. He said, what band? I told him the band, and he said, I love that band. Wow. He said, would you be interested in doing any arrangements for my band? <laughs> I was like, sure. Well, that's kind of neat. So your, your music your music, and, and the things you did music kind of gave you a bit of a connection, like a personal connection with, with the interviewer. A very strange personal connection with the wow. interviewer, and that's kind of how I got in. So for the next like six years, maybe seven years, every six months I had to interview because I was speaking for service. Every six months I come along, I do interview questions. I sort of bounced around like that, and then E Ontario happened. How long? How long did you do the six month interview thing for? Six, seven years. Seven years. Yeah. <laughs> wow. At, at any point, were you like, man, this is this is too much. This is this is it. I'm done. Like, or, or were you just happy to? Hey, I got another six months, right? Like, how old, how old, if I can ask, how old were you at the time? Oh, God, this would have been, I try not to date myself too much. <laughs> this would have been my uh, late 20s, early 30s. Oh, okay, probably. all right, yeah. Um, yeah, somewhere that time frame. So, yeah, I would interview every six months, and I sort of bounced around doing that for, yeah, several years. And then E Ontario happened, they realized I had a lot of people service, so I got an interview. And I won the position. 
Now, given that I interviewed every six months, at that point, I was pretty sharp on an interview. <laughs> <laughs> and they actually had to change the questions, but it worked out well for me. Well, so I was going to ask, was there, if you can remember, is there, was there a difference at that time for you between how you interviewed uh, inside or outside government? Sorry? Was, was, there, a, was, there, a, was there a difference in how, uh, like, the interview process inside or outside the government back then? Um, yes. Outside the government, it was more informal. They'd ask a lot more follow-up questions. They'd dig a little more. The interviews that were doing were pretty structured. It was pretty much the same questions. And there was, again, it was a point system. Uh, so, yeah, it was, a little, it was a little bit different. Now, now, when you did that, so that, that position, that wasn't a manager position, though, right? No, that was an SO3 position. Right. So that's so, a system, I think it's system officer, right? That's what it's referring yes, to? Yeah. Yes. Okay. It's funny, the person who hired me, I just talked to you this morning. <laughs> Anyhow, I, uh, so yeah, I got the position. And then the story gets a little, gets a little bit odd, because what happened is, some people, I'm a, I'm a curious person. So the things I'd be reading and studying in my spare time, I would write briefing notes and business cases to no one in particular, just things I thought we should have been doing. So one day the new manager took me out for lunch. And he said, I have a problem. I don't know how to solve this. I said, funny, I wrote a paper on that. And I gave it to him. And he said, that's neat. What about this one? I said, I got one for that too. So eventually he called me and said, you never thought of doing anything else. I said, I never thought it was even a possibility. And so he said, there's a subject matter expert position. It's an SO5, it's a promotion. Um, do you want to try it? And I ended up trying it. But what ended up happening is the team lead at the time, was, he, was, he was half out the door. So what he would do is he would send me to all of his meetings. <laughs> so I was kind of doing his job. And then I remember this distinctly because Christian Gingras, who's no longer with the OPS, just calls me one day and says, I don't care what trouble I get in for this. You're the new team lead. And this was, it's not really a story you can replicate because there was no interview. You just said, this is your job and I'll deal with the fight I get in with HR. And, and you, I guess to your, to your credit though, you, you'd been doing, like you were doing this job is what it boils down to. Yes. Yeah. The thing that I guess I understated is how much work I was doing. So um, let me, let me ask you a question though. There, you, you just said something and I, I wrote it down as you were talking. You said, at some point, you you didn't even think it was a possibility, like doing no. something else. What what were you like? Why did you think that back then? Um, at that point in time, this happens sometimes in the organization. Sometimes there's a lot of movement, and sometimes it's stagnant. Sometimes it's for political reasons or financial reasons or whatever reasons. But during the time that I was speaker service, things were fairly stagnant. Mm. Uh, the question wasn't even really asked. I didn't really see people move up. So when I was asked if it would be something I'd be interested in, it just seemed like a somewhat preposterous question. <laughs> um, so I took it. They opened the window up crack, and I, I, I pushed my way through. And, and also, I guess the other piece of it, though, Stephen, was you were kind of taking it upon yourself to, to grow and educate yourself and, and do other things Without you weren't you weren't after that you just you, you know you were just trying to better yourself at the same time like through those papers and, and whatnot kind of your curiosity. Uh, I was more yes <clears throat> more after chasing my my own curiosity and I believed that I believed in the solutions I was coming up with. 
That's pretty I believe, that the org- I believe the organization could do better at the thing that I was working at. So, so, so yeah, go ahead. So, so within a year being team lead, I ended up as manager. I was going to say, so if I fast forward within a team year or within a year of team lead, you're, you're, you're in the same area manager. I'm now managing the entire team. Yeah. And we had really good success. We cut our delivery time in half. We were crushing the SLAs. We were on fire. Um, it was a good run. And then I got asked to another management position. Uh, then I got asked to another one. And then I ended up acting as senior manager. And the challenge for me, though, was I got married during this period, and I had a baby, and I was renovating a house. And for me, it was a lot of change. I think I did six jobs in four years. Wow. <laughs> and they were all sort of moving in an upward trajectory. I had to slow down. I was, uh, I was tired. And, yeah, right. Life, life is happening while, you're, while your career is taken off at the same time, right? Yeah. And uh, for me, and, and this is sort of to your question of advice I would give, I think it's important to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, some people, it's ego. Some people want the title. Some people are doing it for financial reasons, security. I ended up getting a few mentors that were, um, one was an ADM deputy minister, and one was, was Brian Watts. Um, but the question that I'd ask the deputy minister is, why? And if the answer is, it's something you believe in and it's something that you want to do and you can make that balance with your life and you think you have something to contribute and that's absolutely what you do. I think sometimes people might get lost in other rationales or why they're doing something. For me, it has to balance with my, 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 my role as a, as a husband, as a father, um, as a provider, as a, as a son. I mean, those things matter to me as well. And works a part of sort of my entire life. I don't think anybody on their deathbed looks back and thinks, ah, I should have worked a couple more hours. <laughs> I think you look at your life differently. And so where it fits in and what is important always ties in. I think that uh, anyone looking at the career should consider that. I think, I mean, most people are ambitious. There are a lot of clues, a lot of signs, a lot of things that the OPS makes fairly clear that you can do or should do. So I'm not sure that I can give anything that's unique in that regard other than consider why you want to do it. Because if it's not something that you really want to do or you're passionate about, it's really hard to, to make yourself do it. I, I can't, I can't, like I'm listening to this and I'm, I can't think of anything more genuine or authentic um, than what you just said and and more real and stuff that I can resonate with too because all those things that you, you listed off, anybody I think could put themselves in, in those shoes and say, you know what, um, you know, who do I, who do I want to be and, and where do I want to be? And, and that, that isn't to disparage that if you're actually just chasing the title, that, that you can't just chase the title if that's the most important thing in, in your life. But I think that the, the messages that I'm getting from you is um, know what you want, know what you want and, and figure out how you want to go get it, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. One of my mentors, he's a retired ADM, but he said to me, you can't accident your way into ADM. <laughs> You have to really want this job. And I was like, yeah, it's a valid point. So, so keeping in line with this job, with the job stuff, and, and uh, on the heels of some fantastic advice, it sounds like you had some really good mentors. Um, just, just to move forward a little bit, a few months ago, you and I were chatting, and, and uh, like often when we were talking, things just kind of pop up in our conversation. I don't even remember how, how you brought this up, but you said, 
Guido, I think I am one of the few black managers in ITS. Uh, and I think it, the context of it, I think, was just in general conversation you and I were having. Uh, and I wanted to explore that a little bit with you in, in a couple of, of parts. The, the first part that I wanted to explore that was, what does it mean to you to be one of, or one of very few maybe, um, when you look around, um, what does it mean on a day-to-day -day basis? And and the second part of that is, sorry, it, it sounded like a, an interview. I, I apologize. You know, five, five parts, I say this all the time. Five, it's just my curious mind, right? Um, has race been a barrier in your career progress or did you ever experience race discrimination, but maybe didn't realize it until a later time? If you did, how'd you overcome it? You know, how'd you, how do you overcome those barriers? So a couple of things there. Sorry, again, I apologize for the length of that. Uh, I wasn't sure how else to get that out to you, but, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sit back and listen. Uh, no, no problem. Uh, first of all, I'm pretty sure I said, I, I think I'm the only ideas, but I think there are two. At least, I know at least one other. Um, <laughs> not that that's necessarily part of the story. I think um, to answer your question and some of your other questions, and I'll go a little bit backwards and talk a, a little bit more about my life in general prior to the OPS and it then sort of within the OPS and where I think it fits in. Uh, important. I don't. I don't speak for all black people. Um, I don't speak for my own family. <laughs> We're not a monolith. We have different experience, different histories of how we arrived, where we arrived. Very important. Um, Very important to mention. And, yeah. and that's important to know. This yeah. is just my story. Um, and there's some sort of Venn diagram somewhere where like age, gender, and race sort of cross over. And some experience might be similar for other people, perhaps from other marginalized groups. And so maybe people recognize something that they've experienced in, in, in their life. But this is, this is mine. Um, I'm, I was born in Toronto uh, in 1900 and uh, your business. Uh, <laughs> my, my parents are Jamaican immigrants, and they, they made specific choices. And they're often choices you have to make about what you're going to fight for, not fight for, and what matters and what doesn't matter, and when, when and how to get involved. For example, my mother... Um, my parents went to New York first. My mother went to NYU for a couple of years. She was about Victorian of her high school. She was a really smart person. My dad's an accountant, a retired accountant. But when they came to Canada, there were a couple of things. My mother wanted to finish her education. At the time, it was a, it was, it was a common practice to attach a photo to your, to your university application. My mother did that and got rejected. And someone said to her, take your picture off. And so she reapplied to... Uh, it was actually a camp, York University's campus BFT at the time without a picture on. Of course, she got on. Uh, not surprising to her when she got there, she's the only black person. And actually, subsequently became the first black person to graduate from York University because she simply wow. had to hide what her race was. But that was a decision she had to make to fight for just to get the education that she, she wanted to give her family a, a better chance. Uh, where do you live or not live? Are you, are you familiar with that line? You heard the term before? No. Redlining was hugely, hugely. I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't. I don't. I don't know how prominent it was, but it was definitely something that was very prevalent in the United States, where developers would basically develop neighborhoods and they draw red lines, and that line distinguish where white families were going to be living as opposed to where black families were going to be living. Uh, did this happen in Canada? Yes, it did. Um, a lot of archival records and parliamentary debates show that it was fairly widespread in the early 40s, 50s, uh, and it's the 60s, which is when my parents came. 
And so even choosing where to live became problematic because a lot of people wouldn't rent to, to a black family. Uh, there's stories of them. Hmm. <laughs> there's one house they lived in. It was the upstairs house, but they moved it to the backyard and through the upstairs window. So they had to hoist the furniture in because the landlord didn't want the neighbors to know that there's a black family living there. When it came time for them to buy a house, the real estate agents kept trying to push them towards certain neighborhoods, but they made the decision of where they wanted to live and what they wanted to fight for. And the neighborhoods they chose, we moved in, and within the first week, uh, there was a sack manure on our porch that said the N-word on it, and go home. So we knew what our neighbors thought of us, but my parents wanted me to have access to that neighborhood and access to that school. Two years later, uh, a 15-year-old black kid got shot in the parking lot at Fairview Mall, which is five minutes from where we live, by a white guy who said he did it because black guys were stealing all the white women. And so now Fairview Mall becomes a place that my brother and sister and I are, aren't really allowed to go for a long time. It wasn't uncommon for me to walk down the street and car windows would wind down. People would yell, go back to Africa or whatever else was sort of on their mind. But again, there are choices that you make in order to sort of build a, a better life. Um, but at the same time, there's a certain amount of trade-off and there's a certain amount of fear. There's a... <laughs> I was about 13 years old. I was at a soccer tournament. This was in the U.S. And I was staying at a guy's house. And Shane, Shane Woodruff. <laughs> and Shane came up to my house one year. But when we were, when we were walking through the woods at night, the police car pulls up. And the cop finds down the window and says, Shane, what are you doing, what are you doing with that there? And he drops the N-word. Mm. And my thought is, I'm in the woods in the dark in a foreign country. <laughs> and the cops are not on my side. This might not end well. Um, I don't know exactly what Shane said, but um, I got out of that one. Okay. Anyway, the point is, it um, it weighs on you. What you need to do to get where you want to go, what you need to do to get where I am, what it is to be. Essentially, I mean, I'm a great, great, great parents, grandparents' wildest dream. They could not fathom that I live where I live and I have the life that I have. But there's sacrifices and trade-offs that you make along the way to get there. Well, my brother, for example, was a, a rookie firefighter. Um, he was in like the, the main hall. And a commercial comes on about traveling to Africa. One of his co-firefighters says, why would someone want to go to Africa? And the chief walks in and says, see the effing, how do I put this? <laughs> I think N-words? Speaking from the trees like monkeys. My brother's got a choice to make. Are you going to take on the chief? Mm. What's that going to mean for your career? And if you take on the chief, what happens? I mean, my brother's now Captain Mike Gilmore, and he's got his own fire hall. It's, uh, he's the one on, if you're ever at uh, Queens Park, uh, by the side of the Y. Yep. Well, it's never allowed to travel again. They'll probably retire. But if you ever see a firefighter with a big gray afro. <laughs> <laughs> that's your brother? <laughs> uh, that's, that's Captain Michael Gilmore. Um, that's awesome. But, again, choices you make. So, again, I, I end up in the OPS. And, fortunately, rarely that have things as glaring at that. Have I had things as glaring at that? But have I heard the end word? Absolutely. And you decide, well, what am I going to do with that? How much of a fight do I want to be? Am I going to be branded? Is it worth saying something? Um, I've heard <laughs> I've heard some weird things, um, but I sit in the room when people were complaining that Kaepernick shouldn't be kneeling or all lives matter. 
or fight over whether or not we should change the word master and slave and how it's ridiculous and it's PC on a muck. And do I want to and should I make that fight? And and, and you're and you're and you're thinking like so all the experiences you just shared with us, because those those are weighing on you as you're yeah. listening to that, right? <laughs> right. Well yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I think do you think no one in the room? <laughs> because yeah, some of the things I've heard today, I just thought was weird is walking with a manager. As I saw three at the time, she points to two people walking and said, what, What's so and so doing with that jigaboo? Really? Which is a weird kind of 1890s sort of word. But I thought she was mistaken because I'm standing beside her. So I pointed to clarify Do you mean that guy? And she said, No. And very clearly points to the black guy and said, The jigaboo. I, I just I just got hired. I was just you know I was just trying to keep my job. I had a I had a child. I had child support. I was living in a small apartment. And but you keep your eye on the prize. Right. I mean, my brother keeps his eye on his prize. He comes Captain Michael Gilmore. I see a small window open. I push my way through and make most my way into management. But do I still have to make compromise and make decisions? Uh, absolutely. Do I think my race has been a barrier? I don't know, but the fact that I don't know is problematic. Um, there's been a fair amount of tap dancing. I mean, I was the only black kid in my graduating class in grade school, junior high, and high school. So being the only like one of the only black managers is not a shocking place to be. What is more interesting is I've been on hundred interview panels. I've been interviewed so many times. I've never been interviewed by anybody black. Huh. Um, and I don't know if that makes a difference or it doesn't make a difference, but I do think whether we mean to or not, everybody tends to think of the racist as a person in the movie who's like frothing at the mouth, holding <laughs> their mustache. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that. Sometimes we may have the best of intentions, but at the same time, there's some unchecked beliefs that we may not have thought about. There are perceptions about me that you may not have or a, I don't know, somebody else of a different gender or different race or a different age. And I think we're not always aware of that. But I'm aware, I'm very cognizantly aware of that. I mean, I go into every interview assuming I'm five points down. And maybe I shouldn't have to. And maybe it's not true. But the question I would ask is, wouldn't you? Those are Those are all... Those are all good self-reflective things, and as you're saying them, I'm I'm thinking through them myself, right? Going, yeah, right. As I'm as I'm just sitting here thinking about some of the things you just told us, right? And and then I can start to see why you might have those thoughts, right? Before you go and do that. Now, I, this wasn't something I was planning on asking, but you've mentioned it a few times. Like I know I know in the OPS, they've brought a lot of attention and and have been doing a lot of work on trying to overcome some of this with, with different programs. Um, you're seeing a difference in, in, in that, at least in the level of discussion and, and acknowledgements and things like that, uh, Stephen? I, I guess the right answer should be yes. The real answer is I don't, I don't know. I can't always tell. This is personally, I can't always tell if I'm just getting older. <laughs> Is the, like, is the world changing? I can't always tell is if you've been a manager for a few years, people treat you a certain way. Um, so 
so I don't entirely know. What I do know is, and this is where it gets interesting, is my first day as a manager, not my first day, my first ITS manager's meeting, I might have told you this story. I walk into the room and Lloyd Campbell puts his arm around me and says, you're number five. Oh, exactly you know what? I got I to gotta stop you there. Uh, you know what? God, yeah. you know, rest in peace. God bless Lloyd Campbell. I have not, like, you know, I remember him from, from my early days in Toronto. So, yeah, yeah you just named blast from the past there. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, he's, yeah. No, he's no, unfortunately, Lloyd's no longer he's, with us, right? He's no longer with yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. he put his arm around me and said, you're number five. He didn't have to say anything else. He knew exactly what he meant. Because hmm. consciously or not, I scanned every room. Um, and the reason you ask me is things have gotten better or they haven't gotten better. Gradually, number five became four, then three, then two um, over the past 10 years. Right. And I'm not saying this, I, I don't know if there's a conscious bias. I don't know. I mean, I don't really know. But I think somewhere between, somewhere between who gets, who applies, who gets interviewed, or who gets hired, who gets training, or who gets high profile projects, or who gets mentored, or who, who gets promoted, there's a long list of steps from outside the OPS to inside the OPS to subject matter experts, team lead, to manager, to whatever level you're going to. And if as a province we represent the people of Ontario, we argue we represent the people of Ontario, you would hope that the demographics represent the people of Ontario. Would represent the people of Ontario. And that if there are groups that are underrepresented, is it more than coincidence? And what responsibility does the organization have to do that? Now, I know there's going to be those who sort of question, it's all about merit. Um, maybe it is. Um, everybody wants to believe everything's about merit, but we all have unconscious biases. One of the things that um, symphony orchestras realized was that the orchestra tended to be a lot of guys. And so one of the things they did is a lot of, into, a lot of auditions for symphonies are, are blind. The person has a number and they audition behind a curtain. And what they found was when they started doing that, the orchestra became more diverse. When you eliminated the ability to even have any sort of bias creep in, people gravitated more so to what was best. So the yeah, question was, was it ever really merit before? Well, yes and no. Um, but no matter who we are, and this is sort of the self-reflective, I know that I'm as well not perfect. There's a, um, there's a study that happens, that's been done before, and it happens in police and other places where they sort of, uh, is a person holding a gun or they hold a wrench? And you have to make a split decision, gun or wrench, gun or wrench, gun or wrench. <laughs> and no matter how many times you try, the, the young black guy people assume is holding a gun. And you can try and correct it as much as you can, but it will be your, your, your gut reflex because we are all sort of raised in society, we're subject to the imagery that comes with it. And our, goal is to do our best to sort of check ourselves. So you've run the gamut, like the, like the stuff you've told me and, and the perspectives. And I, I listen, I want to say, I appreciate this. At the beginning of this, you said, look, it, this is my story. This is my experience. I can't speak for anybody else. This is just how I have lived and, and seen and, and, and have come to, to where I have come to. Um, but still, um, you know, you got me scratching my head and a whole bunch of stuff there <laughs> going, I can't, I can't imagine, I can't imagine, um, you know, some of the, 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 the things you've had to overcome, not just yourself, but, uh, how you, you really tapped into your family. Um, the, the so. The thing is, 
I don't, it's what, I don't think of them as things I have to overcome. I just think of it as this is, this is life. There's no version of my life where this doesn't exist. That's the, that's the part where I'm going, I look at them and I'm thinking, you did have to, <laughs> like, like, holy jumping, right? Like, I, you know, um, I, nobody's left anything on my doorstep. So, so I, I don't, I don't want that for, for you or for anybody, uh, anybody, Stephen. But let me, let me, let me fast forward here a little bit on something else. And I wanted your perspective on this. Um, I want to get clarity. I guess, I, you know, I've always respected your opinion. I wanted you to get, yeah. to get some clarity here. But before I get to the question, um, I, I want to put some context on, on this. When, when, George, when, the, I'm call it, when the George Floyd event happened in 2020, yeah. um, yes. you know, many of us, whether, uh, and it, you know what, we had the discussions at home. I know with school, as a parent, we received a whole bunch of material. Hey, you know what, you should talk to your kids. I know different workplaces. Discussions started to happen about it. And, and I can't believe that anybody does it, but for anyone who doesn't know the details of the George Floyd event, um, George Floyd was an African-American man who was killed during arrest after a store clerk alleged, alleged that he used a, a counter $20 bill. It, it happened in Minneapolis, uh, United States. It seemed that one of four police officers that were involved in the arrest knelt on his neck for almost nine minutes. And then after his death, protests against police brutality and support of black people spread across the United States and around the world. So with that event happening and with all the discussions happening in, in one of the discussions that I was having with, with some folks, um, you know, where, where we had deemed it a safe space, I made a comment and, and this is the comment this is where you, I, I'm looking for your perspective on this. Again, your opinion. I grew up in a family where, you know, we've had interracial relationships there was never any, um, there was never any posturing, or, or there was never a uh, Stephen. There was never us or them, or it, it was just, it was how we were brought up. My relatives and and uh, were my relatives. Uh, we were all an integrated family. We were all integrated friends. Um, that part seemed to be okay. When I offered, uh, uh, where I offended, I think I offended some people. I, I, I'm sure I did because they said I did. Um, is I made this one comment and I, it didn't, it didn't, it, I didn't mean it the way it sounded, but it came out this way. And I said, you know, in my family, we didn't see color. We just saw family and friends. And, and this is where it kind of went sideways. And it was suggested that the comment itself uh, was racist because uh, I said we didn't see color and that we should see color. And here's the thing. I get the gist of it. I, I get the we need to see color part of it. But when it was, I, to me, I was like, man, this, as a standalone comment, I get it. But in the context of that thing, I didn't think I was being offensive. So if you listening to me now in that context, and I'm trying to use this as a learning experience for myself and for others, um, you know, can you unpack that at all? Can you, can you look at that and go, I'll, I'll, what? Do my, I'll do my best. Sometimes it gets tricky because I know a person. Um, and so you sort of understand what's in their heart, what they're trying to say. On the surface of that, of it, it's not like I haven't heard people say that before. And a couple things, when I hear that, fight in my mind. The first thing is like BS. Um, and the second thing I think is, I'm glad you have the luxury of not seeing color. I don't. Right. Um, I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I have to. It's sometimes a simple, pragmatic matter of survival. Yeah. 
Yeah. I shouldn't laugh, but here's a quick story. My wife, my wife, I'm married to a white cop, so there's a whole other George Floyd unpacking story. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So your 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 wife is a is a police officer? <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Uh, she's a detective. She's not on the road anymore. Okay. But um, we were up uh, cottage country, and we were looking at a cottage, and she just walked onto the property and started looking through the windows, and I thought, "Are you crazy?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that. Um, I, as a practical matter, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see color. But I also think that one a, a statement like that feels like it ignores the experiences that I've had or other black people have had. And I think the other thing is it makes it seem as though that you haven't done the work yeah. of questioning your own biases. And taken at a face value that you're the one person in the world who's mastered this thing that right. nobody's really mastered. And that, um, yeah, is probably why. Yeah, and that, that's why I said, you know what, I, I got the gist of when, 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 you said, when I said it, and, and I did apologize, by the way, but when, yeah. when I said it, I got the gist of, okay, that didn't quite come out the way I wanted it to come out, but uh, yeah. I really resonate with what you just said in terms of, you know, your context and that statement, right, and the value, yeah. and the value of seeing color, right? Yeah. The value. Um, so here we are, and, and we've covered some stories. That, that's an interesting story about you not looking in, into windows and things like that. <laughs> but, so you, you told me a story about we were having one of our casual conversations again. Not that this, this is pretty casual. I mean, this is, this is yeah, yeah. T- pretty casual for us too. Um, but you told me a story uh, about not forgetting your ID one time as you were heading out the door. Um, what was that? What was that moment about? Uh, what happened was I lost my credit card walking the dog one morning in the ravine. And my wife was like, why, why do you walk with your wallet everywhere? <laughs> and the reason I thought it was funny is, yeah, my wife's a cop. I spent a lot of time alone with a lot of cops. I've been to weddings and christened babies and a whole bunch of like I've been a lot anyway. And I've heard debates about carding and not carding. And given my experience, I've been pulled over on foot. I mean, it is always what despite best intentions that I, I I may have or believe that people have, it feels wiser to me to always have my ID with me. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean anything's going to happen. I just think it's it's a it's a wiser choice. What so? What does the ID do for you? Like what what is the if you don't if have your ID? If carding exists, they're going to ask me my ID. They're going to want to know who I am. Why not have it handy? Mm. Because if they're going to want to check, they're going to see oh, this is who this guy is. It's not, again, it's not that I walk around with a huge distrust, and maybe again, my relationship with police is a little different than my stepfather right. is a cop, and my stepbrother's a cop, and my, my, my wife's a cop, and so half of the bridesmaids at my wedding were cops. And, <laughs> uh, and, and most of the cops I know are, are quite frankly the female and the millennials, because that's my wife and those are her friends. Right. And like a lot of things, generations and genders, a lot of other influences, attitudes sort of evolve over time. 
But um, and maybe it's because of my age and where I was raised. I just, I tend to err on the side of caution. That sounds bad. Like, I, like, I don't trust anybody. No, well, I'm just trying to think, like, you know, I, the only time I've ever worried about my ID is like, oh, I don't have my driver's license. I should, I should have my. If I don't have my driver's license, I'm like, oh my god, what do I do if I, if I don't have my license while I'm driving? But it's more from I don't want to pay a fine for not having my driver's license, <laughs> as opposed to you know who are you sort of thing. I guess. Here's a story I think was funny. This is about ten, fifteen years ago. My brother firefighter, like a lot of firefighters, a lot of cops, he got a second job. He got a second job working for Canada Post. I don't know how he pulled that off. So anyway, occasionally he had to, the mailbox is turned over, he had to fix it, or he'd have to fix the bolts or whatever it was. So he's out at Jane and Finch in the middle of the night with a crowbar in front of a mailbox. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the cops come by and ask him what he's doing. So he shows his ID and he shows his badge, he shows everything. They say, um, I think he had like tickets or something and his license expired by a day. And they said, don't worry about it, just get yourself home and take it and fix it up tomorrow. But he calls me in a panic, thinking, saying, do you think they're hiding? Do you think it's a trap? <laughs> <laughs> it's, listen, that's funny, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, Gosh. all you guys, first responders, uh, it, it's a cur- they're, cut, they're cutting you a courtesy. <laughs> wow, eh? Wow. So, so listen, um, with all of these things, and, and it's February, it's Black History Month. Um, what does Black History Month mean to you? And what do you want it to mean to others? Or what do you think it should mean to others? I don't know. My short answer is I don't know. I mean, I sort of educate myself and read what I read and sort of follow my own, my own path. I would like to think that... I was describing this way. When I was in high school, I took a course called Ancient History, and I learned a lot about Greece. I thought it was going to be all of history, and I learned about China and the rest of the world and Africa, and I think sometimes we forget black history or all history is, it should just be history. Mm. And I think it isn't always covered the way that it might be. Like, people are surprised. Like, my last name is Gilmore. Gilmore is, is it's likely the name of the last family to own my family. Like, I carry the, this, oh, it's sad, it's the name that I have. It's just, it's just sort of the, the slave name. Um, I'm mostly black, but I'm probably about 20% white, which means, again, there's a life, it's not like these were loving relationships. These were slave owners who owned women and had sex with them. So I carry with me the blood of slave owner, rapist and rapee. I carry me the blood of, uh, of, of slave owners and slaves. And that shouldn't be shocking. And so if there's anything I would hope people do on Black History Month, and I don't think they do, is pick up a book, read something, learn something, learn about Ontario's role in the Underground Railroad. Um, You know, I don't know that people will, and I don't know that they do. Does it have to be Black Black History Month to do that, though? I don't want it doesn't. Right, that's my point. Like, I I like that, for me, I, I like that there's a, there's an opportunity. I, I guess for me, I you know, and I'm I'm thinking at some point Black History Month is going to be something different. Like it, it's it's going to be more integrated. It's going to be uh, you know, it's, it just seems like why couldn't I do this stuff anytime? Like I, I, you know, I, I yeah, I like the highlight. I like that we have the 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 moment to take and and really 
take it as an opportunity to learn. But I'm thinking, man, couldn't we should be able to do this all the time, right? Well, you should hope it comes to a point where no one thinks there's a reason to have it. Right. Because every you know, it's all sort of an integrated view of the world and who other people are in other marginalized communities outside of just the black community. Right. Um, I've been right. fortunate that a lot of my friends have diverse backgrounds. And so, you know, I read stories, and I read history, and I'll talk to them, and they'll tell me stories. Some of the stories are very similar to mine. I mean, when I talk about walking down the street and people wind down the windows, I was walking with Ed Lee and Paul Chan, and they got their shared names called. When I talk about my mother having challenges getting to university, my friend Ben will talk about how there were limits on the number of uh, Jews they allowed to med school, and his father was coming up. Um, there's value in sort of reading and understanding. I mean, I think the courty patriotism. I think Canada is the greatest country in the world, but I do. But that doesn't mean it's not without its um, without its warts, without its painful history that it works to reckon with uh, towards a lot of different groups. But uh, I think as a country, slowly but surely, what size of the line be? It's slow, but the arc of history advances towards justice. I think as a as a country, as a province, we mm. we try and move the right we try and move the right direction. That's uh, that, that, that's that, the part we should have the anthem playing underneath <laughs> me. <laughs> I was just gonna make some sort of musical reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. So, you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know what? Um, the one thing is that you've been extremely, extremely genuine. I keep saying extremely genuine, extremely authentic, extremely tolerant, extremely patient, extremely informative. Um, I hope that everybody today uh, got something out of that in terms of education, uh, in terms of learning, in terms of connecting, in terms of um, just the self-reflection and, and, and understanding. Um, to me, you are an inspirational leader um, and friend. Um, <laughs> Don't ask my staff. Hey. They'll <laughs> <laughs> be like, yeah, I don't know about that inspiration. You are, you are, you are, you definitely are. You have been for a long time, Stephen, um, and, and a friend, and I do appreciate your time. Uh, I hope that everybody else did too. Um, I do a bit of a rapid fire ending to this and rapid fire. I, I like to throw out a few, a few words or a statement and then, you know, what is it, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind to you sort of thing. So there, there's a couple here or there's more than a couple, but are you ready? You want to do that or, or are you okay for that? Uh, sure. Okay. So I'll throw out the first one. Travel. Um, it'd be nice. <laughs> where are you, you going to go? <laughs> there are places I want to take my family. I mean, I want to take my uh, my kids to Jamaica. There's a house that's been on our family for like 200 years. Um, and other places. And my wife's family cool. from Scotland. I like to take them there. And then there's sort of the sort of lazier vacations I want to take without the kids because I love them. But we spent a lot of time together this past year. <laughs> okay, okay, wait. So the next one, kids at home. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> it's been a learning experience. It's been exhausting uh, trying to balance. Yeah, my wife being out because she's a first responder. She's a cop. There are days where it's, it's, it's challenging to do some of the complex math that I get asked to do at work. 
while keeping them uh, on track with their school studies. You're getting you're getting a teacher's degree, aren't you? <laughs> uh, but I've learned a lot. It's sort of interesting to see how they learn what they pay attention to and don't pay attention to. And they've learned a lot about a thing called a mouse because they're used to iPads. Right. And so they learned how to sort of navigate the point and click. It's kind of kind of weird, fun thing to watch. Okay, rolling into the next one, desktops. I don't know why anyone's ever bought them. Honestly, <laughs> this is, you know, I see the end. I don't want to get too into this, but there are like 100,000 computers in the OPS right now. There aren't 100,000 people. Like 30-odd thousand desktops. And every time people buy them, I'm like, why are they getting the desktop? Like, that makes no... Who wants a desktop in five years? So, um, so you're killing... Like, you know what? I love desktops. <laughs> listen, I... You know... I mean, I... I I mean, I have one at home for a very specific thing, and there are organizations where there's a specific reason why they want a desktop, but for the vast majority, and you're seeing a change this year with the whole trip initiative, and people, I think 95% of the orders this year have been books, but um, to me, it's a long time coming. Yeah, there's a, uh, the transition with mobility is, is, a, is a big part of it, right? And that, yeah, it should have happened a long time ago. I mean, I'm always going to ask forecasts and questions, and I always miss because I always assume people are going to buy no, more notebooks than they do. I'm like, really? I thought this would be the year, but this time, I think I've got it right. Like this time, I think people are committed, and it's going to be notebooks. Okay, you you've mentioned him a few times, so I'm I'm throwing him in here. Your brother. <laughs> Brother. I had an awesome big brother. I, when I was a kid, again, a lot of stuff happened, but I wasn't exactly, I was, I was kind of mouthy and very arrogant. Um, and I, was, I mean, I was. I, was, I got rid of the marks in school and I played a lot of sports teams and all those things were happening. And sometimes my brother would bail me out. It's just one of those things where uh, having a big brother <laughs> came into handy. And he, uh, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good yeah. guy I, you know what? I have one too. I look up to him too, just so you know. Okay, last last one, last one, Stephen. Music. Yeah, music to me is this weird combination. My wife's actually complaining about the way I approach music, and I, I, it's more cerebral and not brain. To me, it's a series of mathematical events that happen, you know, mm-hmm. sequentially. And when you take a string and you cut it in half, and the, the, the length of the wave cuts in half. Like that to me is sort of fascinating. That all that math can translate to something that's emotional for people. Um, it's sort of this great combination of left brain and right brain that excites me to the end. Um, I tend to gravitate towards like Charlie Parker or Chopin more so than, I mean, I love pop music too. But um, to me, it's, yeah, it's sort of neat, fascinating kind of thing. I'm always more fascinated by people who love music, like they throw their hearts into it. Because not to say I don't love music, but a lot of it's like, this is a neat puzzle. Um, how did they do that? There, that's kind of interesting to to. Uh, that's a, an interesting perspective on it because I I'm I'm just a self taught musician, so I have no theory. <laughs> I, have no, I, I, I can read chords, but I can't read sheet music. So uh, I'm always. This is why I said at the beginning. I'm always intrigued by by uh, artists and, and musicians like yourself who who take that approach uh, and have that that understanding of it. I wish I I wish I did. 
Um, who knows? Maybe in you know years from now in retirement, um, I'll, I'll take the time to take that because I am interested in it. I just never never had the time to do it. I will I will say this. I'm not sure that's necessarily helpful. I mean, if the point of music is sort of commu- to communicate and convey an emotional create an emotional response for the other person, that's really all that matters. The other stuff is is neat to me. Um, and it's sort of neat to me that different cultures approach that sort of same question the same way. But at the end, the, the result is how do, how do people react to it? And if you get the reaction you want, that's great. And if you, you know, you want to study more to find different ways to do that, that's great too. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing with that is I, I remember you, you made me think of two different videos that I watched. One of them was, was with some friends. I hadn't seen them in, in forever, but they were, they were jazz musicians. And they showed me this one video of Thelonious Monk. I don't know if, if you're if you're a Thelonious <laughs> Monk fan, but this video. I, I'm gonna tell you a monk story. Actually. You have a monk story? Every time yeah. nobody like I, I keep sometimes when I talk about monk, everybody's like who who, and I'm like he's really good. But you have a monk story. Go ahead, Thelonious Monk. Go for it. Uh, I have a monk story. Um, I'll try to do the short version. Ja- Barry Harris, jazz piano player, he's 90 years old. I'm worried that he's, he's, he's going to pass. I had the opportunity to, to study with him and play with him. He would come up to Toronto, I would go down to New York. In his house, he, his roommate for 11 years was Thelonious Monk. No way! And so when you're in the house, it's messed up because it's his grand piano and Monk's grand piano. So I sat down at Monk's piano. And no way! I was afraid to play, but I played it. Did you go in the bedroom? Monk's hats are still there. Do you have, like, a, do you have a picture? <laughs> you have a picture of this? No. This is uh, a very sad. He said, yeah, Monk came over one day and didn't leave for 11 years. No way. Like, this is so casual. Monk came over one day. Really? And well, Mary's whole life is absurd because of like medals from Congress on the wall, or he talks about hanging out with Clint Eastwood or Barry Gordy, or because he did the uh, soundtrack of one of Clint Eastwood movies. Barry Barry Harris is, uh, yeah, he's something else. Well, who knew? Who like you know? I'm just you made me think of Monk, and the only reason was so these guys. My story is not as good. Um, they, they, they had some video on Monk, and this video kind of broke down how you know how unstructured structured his music was and and what he was trying to achieve when when you know when he was playing certain parts of it and then the other one that i saw which has nothing to do with jazz was billy joel (laughs) and billy joel kind of takes you through well when i did this and when i escalated that or when i you know when i and and i'm thinking these guys are writing stuff with a with a you said math with a purpose with a you know, if I if I put these 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 pieces together, I'm going to elicit this type of reaction from the listener, and and I'm thinking I'm just trying to put G, C, and D together. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. The best writers, the best writers, they know what they're doing. Sometimes yeah. it's more intuitive than than that, but they they know full well what they're doing. <laughs> Well, that's great. I got this is a bonus of the monk stuff. Um, listen, is there is there anything else you wanna you wanna say to, to folks or, or 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 leave this thing off with uh, today? Um, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I don't know what value I've added or if there's anything interesting people have taken from it. Um, what they see in their own lives, their own stories. Um, you got me thinking about monk. So maybe I'll leave it on sort of a sad note. <laughs> No. Uh, <laughs> here's the story. Um, Barry Harris always had someone who lives in his house to take him to drive to gigs because in New York nobody ever drives. 
And so a good friend of mine, Danny Pioni, one of the greatest saxophone players I ever knew, uh, lived with Barry for years, drove around to play gigs with him, and he's a heck of a guy. Uh, Damien passed away a week ago. Hmm. And I bring it up, A, because we were talking about Monk and Barry Harris, but also sort of a reminder of what matters in your life and make sure you prioritize yourself the right way. Um, because who knows? <laughs> we get what we get. And we, we, we try and do the, the best we can with it. Stephen Gilmore. That's my, that's my weird sad note. Stephen Gilmore, words, many words of wisdom and, and uh, today. Uh, thank you for sharing your experience, your perspectives, providing opportunities for all of us to continue educating one another. I do look forward to the next time we can play our music together. Or, sir, at least me admiring how you play and learning as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Guido. This, is, this has been great. If you need anything, if you need any machine, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Stephen. No <laughs> problem. And now a word from Renata at RecipesAtMyTable.com. Recipes at My Table is a work of family, love of food, and sharing of stories. The stories keep the memories alive and make every day a party in my kitchen. Join me for the sharing of traditional Italian recipes and so much more. Visit me at www.RecipesAtMyTable.com. All right, I am here with Rosa Aiuliano, tax partner at Baker Tilly Ottawa and fellow chartered professional accountant and fellow chartered accountant. Welcome, Rosa. Thanks, Guido. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, folks, Rosa is here to talk to us about the home office tax deduction and um, what it could mean to you this tax season. So, Based on the pandemic, it does seem that folks have an option to claim some home expenses this year. Um, that's not, however, as straightforward of a decision as it may seem. Uh, I believe, and I understand, and Rosa, I know you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, but there's two options. And the, the first option I understand is there's some a, a T2200 form. Uh, and then the second option is some sort of flat rate. So without me uh, butchering what either of those might be, I'm going to ask you to maybe break those down for us. Okay, well, thanks, Guido. So there has always been an opportunity for the person who works primarily from their home to deduct workspace from home expenses to take a deduction when the pretty much the entire country shut down in March and people were sent home to work that the government had to address how to let people um, deduct expenses for now having a workspace in their home where previously they may not have so the general rule which is the rule that requires the form t2200 to be signed um basically says that you meet the condition that you had a workspace in your home where you worked more than 50% of of the time and you use that space to earn employment income. And then we'll talk about what type of expenses you can claim in that case. So the person who has the workspace in their home could generally deduct heat, electricity, cleaning materials, 
repairs and maintenance specific to the workspace area and potentially a portion of their rent. Um, if a person earns commission income, then they can even claim a portion of property taxes and home insurance. But you can never deduct a part of your mortgage or interest or part of the building itself. So that's the detailed method. And that T2200 form requires the employer to kind of tick the boxes to say you had to work from home, the period of time, they have to attest whether you got reimbursed for anything. And of course, with the pandemic and millions of Canadians taxpayers at home, the government was faced with this overwhelming reality that then you would have to have millions of taxpayers file additional paperwork with this T2200 form. Employers would have to fill out additional paperwork on this form. And so in December, um, they came out and said, okay, we have to make this easier for people. Um, and we have to simplify the rule. Because obviously for a lot of people, this could have been a short period of time where people worked from home. Maybe they only worked for four weeks or eight weeks or, or something like that. So then they came up with the flat rate method. And so the flat rate method was meant to be easier. No supporting documentation. You didn't have to keep every single hydro bill, heating bill type thing um, and the criteria was a lot simpler. Four, it had to be a minimum of four weeks and 50% of that time at home any day. So even if it was a part day, you met the condition. So if you were a typical person who went home in March and is potentially was still working at home at the end of December, and if you counted every day, every work day, Monday to Friday type then excluding statutory holidays, it works out to about 200 working days. And so that's the, how the flat method works. It's $2 a day for every day you worked at home. And if you work 200 working days, it's a maximum of $400. Now, some of the little nuances, right, that you mentioned, yeah. where, where is it not as easy? Um, well, if you took a vacation day, or a sick day, or any leave of absence, technically that doesn't work. Uh, so that doesn't count as a day. So 200 days would be literally if you worked from March to December and you only took your weekends off and you took your statutory, statutory holidays off and that's it. Um, so people should be contemplating, you know, did they take vacation or anything like that? So, so just but, to be clear, if I, if I took four weeks vacation, then it's 200 days less those four weeks. And if I was right. and if I was sick at any time, it's also minus sick days. That's right. Okay. Because you weren't working on your sick day, right. and you weren't working on your vacation day, right? Or at least I hope not. <laughs> so, um, for most people, though, if I were, if, and again, I'm speaking in generalities, but for most people, the two dollars a day works out to uh, a fairly, actually, generous amount. Um, for the average person because again when you start contemplating how much a person actually spends on heat electricity you know cleaning repairs maintenance rent and again then that gets further reduced by the portion of your home that is your home office so if you took a typical three-bedroom house and counted all the rooms and say you had 10 rooms and one room was an office maybe you're claiming 10% of your home. Hmm. 
you know, so some, and then again, then that gets prorated by the number of days where it was used as a workspace. Um, so again, it's not the beginning part of the year where you didn't work there. It's not the weekends when you didn't work there. So you need to, to really look at what, the detailed method compared to the simplified method, I think a lot of people would be better off for the most part with a simplified method, unless your house expenses are very, very costly. So, so that, uh, the, using the T2200 form, uh, it would still, the whole notion of vacation and sick days being deducted still applies, right? That's right. It does. And, and I would still need, uh, to provide receipts to prove that whole whatever percentage of, of usage of the office space is, correct? That's right. Wow. You would need you would need to keep the receipts, and your employer needs to sign the declaration. Right. Is there a is there a break point? Like, if I look at the two at the two options between the T twenty two hundred versus the four hundred dollar max thing, it, and it, you said something. You said, "Well, it depends on what your house expenses are." Like, is there a, a magic number that you'd say, hey, if your house expenses were, you know, $8,000, then it might make more sense to do the 2200 Is there some sort of magic number or or formula? Well, like the, the, the formula, if I use that, so if, you're, if you knew your house expenses were $8,000 for, for the period that we're talking about, right? and you were claiming um, $8,000 for the year, 10% of your home, so $800, and now we're going to prorate 200 out of 365 days, right. uh, which is about 55%. It's That works out to slightly more than $400. And, and I'm doing a lot of work to do receipts and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's right. That's right. right. Okay. Absolutely. And, and like I said, the other piece to it is the employer has to sign the form. And I think a lot of employers are trying to get away from the extra work that they would have to do with signing that form. CRA did come out with a simplified form, which is uh, a simplified T2200, which again just says, did they work at home because of COVID? Right. Did you reimburse them? And, and there's a signed form for a declaration. Um, so again, it's just a form you have to keep, but it's really important that if you're doing any of the detailed methods, you have to have that form because CRA could ask for it. Wow. This is, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty insightful and it's pretty neat. I think I know which way I might want to go <laughs> between the two. Um, is there any other, well, one more question. I just thought of it too, is, uh, does it matter, uh, does it matter what kind of, uh, job I have like does it matter if I uh, what industry I'm in or if I'm in government or uh, does does either of these approaches matter depending on the type of work you do well actually that's actually a really good question because for the simplified method and because of COVID no it doesn't Hmm. they're basically saying if you work from home you could take advantage of this under the normal rules pre-COVID and hopefully for, you know, post-COVID, the, the ability to claim a workspace in the home is limited to the person who uses that workspace 
primarily to like more, which is more than 50% of their time to do their work. Right. So the typical person who says, well, I keep an office at home because I like to do stuff at night or on the weekend or just occasionally work at home. And, but I have a regular office where I meet clients or customers or fulfill all my other duties. You don't qualify to claim a workspace in the home. Interesting too. That's good to know. Yeah, so in the in the typical space, um, like in the typical world when we're not all working from home because of a global pandemic, right. the criteria is much more specific. And I just thought of one other thing that I get questioned a lot. Yeah, and that is because some people, again, like we all got sent home in March, and a lot of people didn't have equipment to set up their home. Right. So I know I get asked a lot about like, well, what if I had to buy myself a desk or I had to buy myself an office chair or things like that? Unfortunately, office equipment like computers, desks and chairs are considered um, capital equipment. So unfortunately, that is not deductible. That is not something that you can write off. And the government really didn't give any provision to to, to deduct anything like that. And kind of the logic behind it is that it becomes something that you're going to keep. It's long-lasting. It has value beyond just the one year. Um, So for the most part, um, that is not something you can deduct. One of the things the government did say early on, like CRA came out early on saying that if an employer reimbursed you, for those types of expenses, up to $500, it wouldn't be a taxable benefit to you as an employee. Right. That's, that's but good. If you, yeah. But if you chose to outfit and like go gangbusters and set up a full office at home, unfortunately, that is not something you can write off on your tax return. Yeah, and that makes sense because I guess over a period of time, the the product that you purchase would be amortized over those period that period of time, and 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 we're not really perhaps I guess set up as a, a as a business. Most of us we're just working at home because of the pandemic, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So hopefully, most people can look at it and say, "Well, I didn't have to pay to commute. I didn't right. have to maybe pay to park somewhere, and uh, just hopefully you net." maybe came out a little bit on that, on those costs. I guess it depends on which center you're working in. That, uh, like I said, this is uh, fantastic, very insightful. Um, is there, and I know you just gave us that sort of one last tidbit. Uh, is there anything else that we should uh, be aware or are we solid with this information uh, moving forward, Rosa? I, I think the only other piece that most of us probably already um, had, but again, it could be incremental, is home internet access fees. So, uh, the cost for home internet, um, if it increased because of the pandemic, so if you had to increase your co- what you were previously paying, yeah. you can claim the uh, the increase. But again, it's got to be reasonable and make sense, right? So right. for most people, I think the typical household who had the internet already um, probably didn't start paying more for internet unless they had to really like increase their plan 
to accommodate working from hey, uh, someone right. working from home. Accommodate, you know, six people being online is where before it might have been one. <laughs> or exactly. Like exactly. You have kids working from home too, don't yeah, you? I, Same I, with me. I do. And we you know what? We did have to we did have to upgrade. The the bandwidth just wasn't enough with all the, the video streaming and, and with me, you know, the video streaming all day as well. So uh, we did indeed, but I, everything you've told me, uh, it, it the, the the second option, that flat rate option, seems to be um, the more sensible one, at least for me. But I do know that everybody's situation might be different. There might be some where that break point uh, for the 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 you know using the receipts and the T twenty two hundred might be the better option as well. But everything I've heard baseline here is that flat rate just seems a whole lot easier, right? It, it is it is easier and i think that's what they were aiming for is ultimately trying to make it easy so people didn't have to go back and you know pull out receipts and add it all up and and figure and figure out that math at least you know we could all count the days that we were home i feel like we're all still just counting the days we are count we are counting and imagine that counting with a an accountant here so (laughs) rosa listen i really appreciate that i hope the listeners appreciate that that's some uh, fantastic advice uh, I am hoping that maybe uh, somewhere down the road you can come back and do uh, a more full show with us and we can get into some other topics and, and, and you could provide that insight. Uh, is that a possibility? Absolutely. I'd love, I'd love to do that. Thank oh, you. Oh, awesome, Rosa. So thank you again, Rosa Juliano, tax partner at Baker Tilly, Ottawa, fellow charter professional accountant and fellow charter accountant, giving us some insights on the home office tax deduction. Thanks a lot, Rosa. You take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, now we're going to go into uh, a new segment of the podcast, which is to introduce some music. Today I have Canadian artist Ronnie Beals, and Ronnie's providing for us an original song called Uncomplicated. Uh, On the advent of Valentine's Day, he's written it for someone special in his life. And the take on the song is that it's got some uh, rock music, 80-ish type of production to it. So looking forward to that. I've listened to it. It's fantastic. I hope you like it too. And if you want to hear the rest of Ronnie's um, music, you can go to ReverbNation.com forward slash Ronnie Beals. Have a listen, folks.
Uncomplicated by Ronnie Beals. You can listen to that at uh, ReverbNation.com forward slash Ronnie Beals. I'll have the uh, the address in my uh, podcast notes as well for your convenience. But what a fantastic little tune. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And uh, I certainly did. And I'm looking forward to, to having more from Ronnie in the future. The next segment is my story, and this segment today is brought to you by Royalty Hair Supply. You can find them on Facebook, royaltyhair.supply. The owner, Anthony, is a barber up in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and in the spirit of supporting local business, especially during this pandemic time. uh, Folks, if you're up in Sault Ste. Marie, check it out, Royalty Hair Supply. They're on Facebook. He's got some uh, great products, and I'm sure you'll understand as I uh, cover the, the top topic of my story, the importance of supporting uh, local business and, and how the story goes as it, as it might be. All right, welcome to the part of the show where I tell you a story, uh, usually uh, something personal about myself or someone I met or something to do with work. And so today I'm going to talk to you about uh, my moment with Stuart McLean. That is Stuart McLean of the CBC Vinyl Cafe, which can be found at www.vinylcafe.com. Stuart uh, McLean, unfortunately, is no longer with us. He passed away on February 15th, 2017, at the age of 68 years old, uh, after he lost his battle with melanoma. For anyone that doesn't know, melanoma is a serious type of skin cancer. It develops in the cells, it produces melanin, and that is the pigment that gives your skin its color. Uh, For more information on that, and if you have any concerns, uh, please refer to your uh, family physician or reliable sources uh, on the uh, internet if that's how you choose to find your information. My story about Stuart, though, isn't about cancer. It's about my moment with Stuart McLean and the influence uh, of Stuart over the years. I first started listening to Stuart McLean and the Vinyl Cafe on CBC Radio 1 on, uh, around 2003-2004. Uh, I came across the show just by chance as I was driving on the highway and I was trying to find something to listen to on the radio. Uh, and that was somewhere between driving uh, from Sault Ste. Marie to Toronto and, and back. Um, once I figured out who he was, I started listening to the show on a more regular basis. Um, and eventually I read his book. Um, I actually read his book while I was uh, with my uh, mom back around 2006. Uh, I spent some time with her in Sudbury at the Daffodil Lodge as she was being treated for uh, cancer at the uh, Sudbury uh, Cancer Clinic Center. And boy, uh, I met some interesting people while I was there too. Um, A lot of folks who uh, were very inspiring for being um, in the place they were in life. Um, They were full of hope and they were full of of kindness as well. Um, But while I stayed there... Uh, while my mom was getting her treatment and and or just winding down and, and taking some downtime, I was reading uh, Stuart's book. Uh, I think it was the Vinyl Cafe Diaries. I think it was a green cover book. Um, but that kind of got me through the week, just making my way through that. And uh, I remember sending a, a note to uh, to his show 
I think his producer is, is uh, Jess Melton, and I, I think I might have gotten a response from from her as well to that end. Um, but um, that was part of uh, Stewart's show where he would say, hey, you know what, if you write us a letter, we're going to read every letter. And, uh, and they did, and, and they respond. So uh, I do remember that. Um, I did get to see Stewart also in 2004 at a show at Convocation Hall in uh, Toronto. And then I saw him again in 2013, a little bit of time between those shows. Um, but I listened in between, uh, but I saw him in, at the Sony Center in 2013. Um, the, uh, the last time that I was scheduled to see him was in 2015 on December 12th. Uh, unfortunately, that show got cancelled as he was diagnosed and um, he was going to take some time off. So I never did uh, see Stuart um, uh, since, that, uh, since that time in 2013. But... The moment that I wanted to share with you about Stuart McLean actually happened, uh, it was around 2009, 2010. Um, I was at a uh, tech show and uh, he was scheduled to be the guest speaker, uh, but I didn't know. I didn't know that he was going to be the guest speaker or sometimes they call it a keynote speaker. And um, I was walking around the booths. They had all these different booths set up with uh, different technology um, companies and, and other information booths, and um, he said, "Hey, are, you're gonna you're gonna go see uh, the, the the keynote tonight." And I said, "No, nah, you know what? I got to get home, and it's a, it's a long drive back up to, to where I live, and so I don't. I think I'm gonna pass. I just want to do this and, and then get going." And I said, um, "Who's it gonna be, anyways?" And, and he goes, "Oh, it's uh, Stuart McLean from CBC." I'm like, "No way, Stuart!" And he's like, "Yeah." I said, "Oh," I said, "I wonder if I can still get in." He's like, well, I think you had to sign up. Uh, I said, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go line up and <laughs> see, see if I can get in. He says, well, I thought you had to get home. And I did, but this is Stuart McLean. You know, I, I love Stuart McLean. He's got great, great shows and great stories, great personality. So, um, just fast forward that, and I, I, I did stand in line, and I did manage to get a seat, um, pretty much near the back. But, but it was still entertaining and it was still fun, and. Um, at the end of the at the end of his um, speech or motivational speech that day or storytelling as Stuart does, he said, "Hey, you know, if if any of you want to want to come see me or want an autograph or anything, you can. I'll stick around." And I thought, "Hey, that would be great. I mean, I've, I've seen him a few times. I've read his books, and you know, have the have some CDs, etc. So it'd be great if I could if I could meet him." I thought, "What am I going to get him to sign?" Um, and I thought, well, I don't want to, I don't want to get him, if I just give him a piece of paper, then I got to put that piece of paper somewhere in a book somewhere and, you know, pull it out once in a while. I said, oh yeah, yeah. I remember when I got Stuart's, uh, Stuart's autograph. Anyway, he's at, he's at the bottom near the, near the stage. And I kind of waited, I waited till the, the crowd, uh, all dispersed and there's only a couple of us left and, you know, I approach him and, and, um, you know, Typical me, like I'm. Hey, Mr. McLean, you're you're awesome. I love your stories, and and again, and he's he's probably looking at me thinking, oh great, a crazy fan, wonderful. <laughs> but but I was calm. I was calm. I said, so so, Mr. McLean, would you would you please sign this lizard? And he looks at me, and and he says, a, a what? And I said, I'd like you to sign the the belly of this lizard. And what I had in my hand was a plastic um, lizard. 
I had gotten it at one of the booths. It, it might have been, might have been Telus. I want to say it was Telus. And so he grabs, you know, I hand him the lizard. He grabs it and he looks at it, and he does this little smirk, um, sort of laugh, smirk. Now, not laugh out loud, but it was just a, it was a Stuart moment. It was a. He just looked at it and he he inside. I I could see him kind of chuckle, and he you know he grabs the lizard, turns it over and he starts to autograph the belly of the lizard and you know he hands it back to me and i'm like oh I'm, you know Mr. Clean, thank you so much i really appreciate that i've seen your shows i can't wait to see you again um and, you know again he's probably thinking okay leave crazy fan with the lizard now <laughs> but, but my moment with Stuart was was that we had a, a a funny moment between us um probably i i remember it more than he does although i'd like to think that at some point he thought hey, i wonder where that guy with that lizard i've never autographed a lizard before but i still have the lizard Stuart. Stuart the lizard is sitting um just on the shelf to to my left here and he keeps me company uh during the podcasts and and whenever i'm doing anything else he's always in my office so that was my Stuart mclean uh, moment uh i do miss his shows uh i do miss uh um you know hearing to his stories and, and whatnot uh, and I do try to follow some of his show format um, with mine in terms of being able to give everybody a little bit of something to listen to. Um, hopefully, I'm, uh, I'm doing him some honor, and uh, thank you for listening to my story. And you can check it out, Stuart McLean, VinylCafe.com. All right, take care, folks. So that brings to conclusion the February 2021 edition of my podcast. I hope there was something in this for everyone. I certainly expanded it out to try and uh, diversify a little bit of the, the content for folks. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and I hope to see you next month. Take care, folks. Take care, folks.